Today's On Shuffle episode is brought to you by Belvedere Vodka. Produced in one of the world's longest-running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka. Crafted by a collective of master distillers, Belvedere Vodka is made with non-GMO Polish rye, pure water, and no additives. Recognized for quality, Belvedere Vodka was named the ISC World Vodka Producer of the Year in 2015, 2016, and 2017. Thus, we're very excited to have Belvedere Vodka as the sponsor of On Shuffle. Enjoy a delicious cocktail with Belvedere Vodka today, and remember to always drink responsibly. Oh yes, we are back again. You thought you could get rid of me. I am your host, Micah Peters, a staff writer at The Ringer, and this is On Shuffle. And today, we are going to be talking about well, we're just going to be talking about some music that we like with my colleague, Rob Harvilla. He's going to talk about this Talking Heads cover album by this global pop star from Banan called Angelique Kidjo. You should really check it out, but we're going to talk more about that later. And I'm also going to be joined by my colleague, Lindsay Zolads, and we're going to be talking about what the hell Nicki Minaj has been doing with this album rollout. Let's get into it. What is going on with Nicki Minaj? Strictly speaking, and speaking in most other ways, Nicki Minaj has been, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Teetering towards the release of her third studio album, Queen? The highest charting single scraped the top 10, but that was months ago. And desperation is a big word to use, but there may not be a better one for this album rollout. She's been wilding for respect on Twitter. She did a song with Takashi 69 in short, the drop date for Queen, August 10th, is fast approaching, and my colleague Lindsay Zolads and I have no earthly clue what Nicki Minaj is doing. Even less, we don't know if she knows what she's doing. Lindsay, how are you doing today? You know, I'm okay. <laughs> okay, I'm okay, just okay? It's the best any of us can be these days, but especially <laughs> given what we are about to talk about uh, I'm ready. All right. Well, let's just get straight into it then. Let's just rip the bandaid off a little bit here. What's been the most cringeworthy part of the album rollout for you? Ooh, I mean, going after the fan on Twitter. Yeah. Um, we're talking about uh, culture critic Juana Thompson, who basically tweeted a very extremely like tepid, mild critique of Nicki Minaj's music. And yeah. she went all the way off. Wanda Thompson was an intern for uh, KarenSilvel.com. After Nicki Minaj sicked her fans on her, like she got death threats. She lost her job. It's been like a mess. Um, and most crucially, Nicki DM'd her personally and just said some real nasty stuff. And then that was in turn, made public. Um, it's just no, nothing. Nikki does not look good. Nothing about that. it looked great. So, as Thompson tweeted, you know how dope it would be if Nikki put out mature content? No silly, no silly shit. Just reflecting on past relationships, being a boss, hardships, etc. She's touching 40 soon. A new direction is needed. Again, very mild, very mild critique. And Nicki Minaj came back with all sorts of things. She got, she, I mean, she goes, I mean, like she called her ugly. She did all this. She said all this other crazy stuff. She said, just say you're jealous. I'm rich. I'm famous. I'm intelligent, pretty and go. 
she also was so pissed that she misstated her age. She said, I'm 34. My bad, I'm 35. <laughs> that is, I mean, who can relate? <laughs> yeah. There's no way to look good punching down like that. No, and we should mention that Joe Coscarelli wrote a really good piece in the New York Times kind of contextualizing this and speaking with, I forget the name of the woman who uh, the barbs went after. Oh, uh, Wanda Thompson. Yes, and just kind of letting her get her voice out there. But, you know, it was very unfortunate. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, like, there's a, a whole other discussion there to be had about exactly how much power a brand or celebrity holds uh, on the internet in those kinds of situations. But if we start talking about it, we'll probably never stop. For me, it was probably the L interview. So there was a lot in there. There was a lot in there. (laughs) There was some stuff about, you know, she found trap music sort of distasteful now and, she also, the, the, but the chief thing among them was the was the comment that she had about the sex workers. She said, maybe I was naive, but I didn't realize how many girls were modern day prostitutes. Whether you're a stripper or whether you're an Instagram girl, these girls are so beautiful and they have so much to offer. But I started finding out that you give them a couple thousand dollars and you can have sex with them. It's just sad they don't know what they're worth. It makes me sad as a woman and it makes me sad that maybe I've contributed to that in some way. How do you feel about that quote? Ooh, it's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I will say it feels like a far cry from the Nicki Minaj who once released a song called I Endorse These Strippers. Great B-side to Roman Reloaded. Uh, Recommend it. It's fantastic. I think she's working some stuff out right now that she does not have her head around yet, which makes me worried about this record. It just doesn't seem like she has the blueprint, or shall we say the pink print, to uh, the grand scheme of what's going on here. It just, it feels like there's a lot of contradictory things that she's saying, a lot of things that kind of don't back up with the values that we have come to expect from her. But yeah, I think the stuff about her kind of critiquing trap music a little bit and the the simplicity of it, I I do think one thing, and we're going to unfortunately get to the Takashi song, but I think something that, that you get from that is like, Nikki is a very technically gifted MC and she really can like wrap in circles around most of... Like the, a large part of the guys of, like, that have yeah. become, you know, possibly like more popular or powerful than her in this new era. And I think she's just kind of grappling with what that means. And and do you play that game to get the hits? Because she's so focused on winning and being the best and the first woman to do things and like getting as many. She cares very much about the charts and her placement and numbers and stuff like that. So it's interesting to hear her kind of critiquing what I think would be like the easiest way for her to become, you know, relevant in the way that she wants to be is to lean really heavily into into trap. But like, it's just I'm getting a lot of mixed messages from her and, and it's not very reassuring. 
Yeah, well, now that you brought it up, we kind of now have to talk about it, especially <laughs> since the well, the, the the single in question is a barefaced move to to grab like a higher charting single. You know, I mean, like it's the Fifi featuring Takashi Six Nine is the record in question. He trying to 69 like Takashi, call him papi, worth the ASAP, keep me rocky. I'm from New York, so I'm cocky, say he fucking with my posse, caught me Chloe like Kardashian, keep this pussy in Versace, said I'm pretty like Tanashi. Yeah, okay, so let's just start with the video. It's kind of like this like colorful Candyland type deal, yeah. and the two of them are sharing an ice cream cone and there's Takashi 69 like slowly licking the Yeah, it looks like a child that went to Dylan's candy bar on a trip to New York City and ate everything and then just threw it all up. That would <laughs> that's how I would describe the aesthetic of this video, which arguably is an aesthetic that Nikki has done much better and much more high budget. It's just there's something kind of like low rent about it that feels a little sad to see her in that context. The exception that most of Minaj's fans are taking to this video is the fact that this isn't the first time she's endorsed. Uh, this isn't the first time she's endorsed a child molester. Uh, yes, I think what's so frustrating about it, which is kind of kind of said this already, but that Nikki's verse on that song is not bad. Like you hear that, and she there's just so much more command of her style and what she's saying and so much more of a flair for her language than than Takashi. It's unfortunate that this is the way she feels like she has to get her message out because I think even in the strangest and lowest places that you find a Nikki guest verse, um, which there are some really odd places. Shout out to the latest Fergie record, for example. Like, she'll do a <laughs> verse for pretty much anybody, but she kind of always brings it. And there's something a little bit sad about her bringing it in such context, because you're like, oh, she really is talented. I mean, like, thinking about the juxtaposition of, say, in 2012. 2012, Nicki Minaj tweeted, you know, like, People who abuse children should be stoned to death in public. And she also was featured on a Beyonce song that everybody basically spent a couple of very frantic hours looking for, you know, title vouchers so that they could watch the music video of her sharing oh, yeah. burgers with Beyonce in a kiddie pool. Like, Still an iconic gif. I yeah. <laughs> but I mean, then 2018, here we are. It's just kind of this this strange identity crisis she's going through because we've asked her. It's not lost to me that we've asked her to be a lot of different things at this point. And on top of that, she has been a bunch of different things. I mean, I think the elephant in the room, too, is Cardi B. And we have to, unfortunately, because we live in a culture that demands that we talk about them together and, and kind of foster some sort of imagined competition between them. I think Nikki is very aware right now of whatever her next move is going to be, people are going to probably unfavorably compare her success, her numbers, her whatever to invasion of privacy. you want to yeah. Invasion of Privacy, which is a big hit this year. And, and Cardi recently became the first woman ever to have two number one songs 
on the Billboard chart. Like even Lauren Hill didn't do that. So Cardi is writing this very visible success in a way. Extremely that- visible, as in like last night <laughs> tweeted uh, a bank statement to prove that she paid for a Lamborghini and didn't lease it. Bow down. <laughs> Just, yes. But, you know, the the age difference, and I have written about this before, of, of just Cardi and Nikki are kind of coming from different, sort of different micro-generations of hip-hop and women in pop culture and in rap music. Um, and I, I do, I'm sure Nikki has some anxiety about that. And the fact that the tweet that set her off had something to do with her age I think is a little bit telling and I bring all this up not to, I don't blame her for any of this. I think she is very aware that of the culture that she's coming up in and that a good part of her success for a long time was predicated on her being the only female rapper who was on the billboard charts and who was having this kind of mainstream success so to have Cardi out there it would be really hard being Nikki for that not to get in your head. I think that we're talking about everything but the music right now, which is telling, right? Because I think she's channeling a lot of her energy into picking fights with a random woman on Twitter, you know, just causing controversy that feels apart from the songs. And I do wish that she was channeling more of that energy into just making, making good music. Good, good music. So now that we're back on the subject of the music, have <laughs> it, have any of the Nikki singles actually stuck for you personally? None of them have really stuck commercially. Like Chun-Li, yeah. Scrape the Top Ten, Barbie Tings kind of was adrift in there in the middle of the— mm-hmm. And then there was Bed uh, featuring Ariana Grande, which only really got as high as number 43. Mm. And then there was Rich Sex, which, I mean, was just a negligible song between, you know, like her and Lil Wayne. Mm -hmm. I think the only one that I've found decent and like up to par with her was Barbie Tings. And that's the one that's not going to be on the record, which is not doesn't bode well. I'm in my prom, optimist, Sagittarius, so you know I'm an optimist. Man, keep it all real, I'm a prophetess. So at least you took an L off your bucket list. chun is not my favorite Nikki single at all, but I kind of like this idea of her playing with the idea of being the villain and being perceived as the villain because I do think that is like a way forward for her and a strength of Nikki is like she really can put people in their place and she can be like the mean girl with a purpose. Oh, I get it. They painted me out to be the bad guy. Well, it's the last time you're going to see a bad guy do the rap game like me. I went and cut the chopsticks, put it in my bun just to pop shit. I'm always in the top shit. Box seats, bitch, fuck the gossip. How many of them could have did it with finesse? Now everybody like she really is the best. You, play you know, and I'm thinking of the way that, because I think she's like working more in a pop idiom now, like, you know, Miley, what's good? That was, that that was, was an A-plus moment of Nikki and the way she kind of like put Taylor Swift in her place um, when Taylor Swift was trying to, you know, Shake act it off. like, yeah, and and kind of do some questionable things 
regarding race. And so I think there's like a place for her to lean into that villain role a little bit more, which I think is funny because that's something Taylor Swift tried to do. And it just like totally backfired because she's not that girl. But Nikki, Nikki can play that. And I think the one thing you see in her uh, DM history you know she can she can spit that venom. Yeah, much like on the on the outro of Chun Li. Let's hear that for a second. They need rappers like me. They need rappers like me, so they can get on their fucking keyboards and make me the bad guy, Chun Li. Hey yo, I've been on, bitch. You've been con. She should just make a beat out of her maniacal chuckle and she, then go from there. Honestly, is that is that? Would you be happy if that was like actually a song on Queen? Depends on who's featured on it, but <laughs> who would have to be featured on this this imaginary song in which she's sampling her own chuckle for? Just not Takashi. Anyone <laughs> hashtag anyone but Takashi. But in all seriousness, though, um, aside from her leaning into her villainy. Is there anything else that you're kind of hoping it, you're hoping for, hoping against hope for on this on this album that comes out in nine days? Actually, it doesn't feel oh, like wow. it, but nine days. No. You know, I I th- and I, if you can't tell already from this conversation, I'm a bit of a stan for Nikki. I'm not a Barb. I did not <laughs> I did not come for <laughs> her enemies on Twitter, but I I am a fan and an appreciator of. I think a lot of what she's done in you're not a stand, but you might say a spicy word or two to the person sitting next to you at the bar that complains about the fact that you've put on four door Ventador for the fourth time this evening. Oh yeah, because that's a really good song. Yeah, it's a great song. (laughs) Yeah, four times is not enough. Um, So yes, that's an accurate. I'm sure I've done that exact thing. Um, I do think, and I'm glad you brought up that song because I definitely think that was a highlight on the pink print. I think the Pink Print, which is her last full-length record, I think it came out in 2014, end of 2014, Mm -hmm. um, was pretty underrated. I think it's not really considered a a commercial hit or or kind of a high point of her career, but I think two-thirds of that record are really, really good and kind of didn't get the praise that that they should have. And... uh, I do think, I do not agree with the way in which she came for um, that writer on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But I think there are songs on, especially on the first half of the Pink Print, really introspective, quote-unquote mature songs that, that do kind of check those boxes. And the unfortunate thing is, like, I think Nikki considers that record to be sort of a failure because people didn't rally behind it in the way they do her more provocative stuff. Mm -hmm. So I do wonder if that's why she seems to be leaning away from that introspection and, and kind of the, you know, the first part of Pink Print is really like a breakup record that's really candid and sad. Uh, And then there's, you know, Anaconda (laughs) at the end Um, (laughs) and various other songs. But I, I don't know. I think she, that's the one thing that worries me is I, I think she feels like she did that vulnerability thing. It didn't really scan. Um, and now she's trying to move away from that. But I would like to see her go back to that. And I do think that's a way for her to continue to mature and 
develop a sound that has something new to say about what it's like to be Nicki Minaj in 2018 as opposed to Nicki Minaj in 2010, which is going to be really different in anybody's life. Wow. Um, I mean, like, she is definitely releasing this this album into a, a vastly different world than four, eight years ago. Yeah, and a, a moment in which a lot of her, you know, the titans that she sort of aligned herself with when she first came on the stage are really disappointing a lot of people. Like, you know, if if the first big Nikki moment was the monster verse on Kanye's Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, it's just interesting to look at Queen being a record released in the same year as Ye, which I have forgotten 17 times over that Kanye put that record out yeah. this year. Like, it happened recently, too. But I think the people who were her peers and her contemporaries are having a little bit of trouble right now kind of wedging into this new world of the Cardi B's and, for some reason, the Drake's still <laughs> incessantly. Um so I don't think it's just her, but I think she's going to have to figure a new strategy out for kind of reinventing herself a little bit. Lindsay, thank you very much for joining me and trying to make sense of the queen rollout, which, I mean, is, you know, tied our heads in pretzels, uh, so yeah, to speak. trying is the key word. <laughs> trying is the key <laughs> word. It's, maybe it'll be good. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> let's, let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> All right, hold up, y'all. We're going to talk about backpacks real quick. Solo New York is one of the biggest bag brands in the country. They started in 2008 with a commitment to shake up the boring industry and make cool, thoughtfully designed bags to keep everyone moving in style. Solo's designs are uniquely inspired by the streets of New York. There's a bag for everyone, from backpacks, tablet cases, briefcases, totes, duffels, and more, like the Varsity Peak Backpack. It's beautifully designed with your needs in mind. It's ultra lightweight with padded straps for extra comfort and made with smooth nylon fabric. It has a fully padded laptop compartment to keep your hardware safe and a back pocket for quick access for personal stuff. Like, you know, if you needed to bring a granola bar and your laptop and maybe there's you have your DSLR in your backpack so you can take that perfect picture on the ridge while you're taking a hike. Head to solo-ny.com slash shuffle to shop from hundreds of designs and get 25% off your order. Again, that's solo-ny.com slash shuffle for 25% off. Go get you some. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Lost my ship Trying to casual Recommendations was so fun last week with another staffer that I decided to do it again uh, because left to my own devices, I would end up talking about some obscure rapper from Atlanta that, you know, like you probably haven't heard of. So Rob, Rob Harvilla, music writer and registered good opinions haver about music. How are you doing today? Well, that's very sweet. I'm excellent. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing just fine. So what you kind of were talking about yesterday off air was uh, this new album that is actually a Talking Heads cover album that you have been listening to a lot lately? That's right. Uh, my recommendation is Remain in Light by Angelique Kidjo, who is a legit global pop star. She's from Benin. She's been 
super famous for a couple decades now, like all the Grammys and the memoir and just legit diva status, I guess. And uh, Remain in Light is a, it's a track-by-track cover of the Talking Heads album. I think it's their fourth um, from 1980. You know, I just go song by song. And it's, you know, probably the most acclaimed Talking Heads record overall, you know, and it's the one with Once in a Lifetime on it. Well, how did I get here? the days go by. That was the uh, first song that she had heard from the album in 1980 and then didn't listen to the album in full until, until 2016. I read the same thing and that was pretty shocking. But yeah, that's what she says. You know, it, I was two years old in 1980 and I was trying to remember, like, I don't think that they were a real pop thing, like an MTV thing until Once in a Lifetime, like most of their biggest pop hits came after and so i you know if you were going to hear one talking head song then it would have certainly been once in a lifetime so it's totally plausible to me that that's all she would have heard but yeah i it the album sounds like she's been deep in the album you know for 30 plus years so it was really surprising to me that that she's coming to the most of it so fresh yeah the leap between their third and fourth studio albums like for the talking heads is that they kind of turned away from their minimalist style and kind of uh, ballooned to a 10-piece, like, maximalist band. Um, Yeah. It's sort of the one where they made a concerted effort to, like, get into African music. You know, like, Graceland is probably a glib comparison in a lot of ways, but it's a similar sort of thing where they, you know, they they were taking on another genre and they were treating it with reverence, but also, like, putting their own very, very distinct spin on it. But yeah, as you say, like, they ballooned to this huge band, you know, everything got more complex, got more dense. You know, Brian Eno, who I think had produced the previous one or two records before that, like this is sort of one of his milestones as just a super producer. And, you know, it's, it's just an enormous record, you know, above and beyond anything that they've done up to that point. What is it about uh, Angelique Kidjo's uh, verse, like taking it back to its the album's, I guess, Afrobeat roots? Uh, yeah. What is it? What is it that makes this album so good? The beauty of the Talking Heads is sort of the tension between how awkward and how stiff they could be, and you know the lead singer David Byrne in particular versus how, like, for lack of any other word, funky they could be. You know, there's just a real tension there. You know, it's like the ultimate awkward white people dancing band. <laughs> and I, it's, you know, and so this is the album again where they sort of embrace Afropop in full. And it's just, it's really amazing to have like a legitimate global superstar, as you say, like sort of take it back. Like there's a semi-famous, semi-famous line from the album, The World Moves on a Woman's Hips. And like the difference between David Byrne singing that and like an actual woman singing that <laughs> is, is, is pretty amazing. And that's on which record? The Great Curve. That's the that's the song it's on. Can we hear a little bit of that? Sometimes the world has a load of questions. Seems like the world knows nothing at all. In addition to, I guess, the stark contrast between Angelique Kidjo singing that line and 
uh, David Byrne singing that line. Is is that your favorite track from the from the new the newer album, or is there something else that you think was better, like something that Kid Joe did that was better than on the original? Yeah, I mean, Once in a Lifetime, you know, it's, it's sort of the easy answer, but like, again, that was probably one of my first introductions to the band, and that's certainly probably still their best-known song, you know, and in terms of a one-song introduction to what's happening here, you know, I think it's pretty pretty effective. I Cross-Eyed and Painless, which I think is the second song on the record, like, mm-hmm. I'm still sort of digging in, but like just as a superficial reaction to how like bright and huge and amazing it sounds like that's one on this new record that I'm sort of gravitating toward, but just, it's just to have the whole thing, to have all nine tracks, I think it is, you know, it's just the span of it is pretty overwhelming in a great way. And I'm still sort of digging in, but that's another one that stuck out to me for several times. I mean, like you said, she's a global she's a global pop star, and she's she's yeah. messed around with like other old standards, like uh, "Lady" by Fela Kuti, and she and she right, uses right. that same like she gonna say I be lady yo like on the second on that on that same yeah. record. Yeah, yeah. I the drummer for a lot of this record is Tony Allen, who is Fela's drummer, mm-hmm. and you know is in his own right sort of a deified Afrobeat star and so yeah there's there's a whole lot happening here like jeff basker produced this like the dude like kanye and jay-z and like wow. legitimate sort of pop superstar <laughs> really um and yeah and weirdly enough but like it's really really apt like ezra koenig from vampire weekend shows up at one point like it's not like a duet like he's just singing background vocals on one of the tracks and it's you know vampire weekend is another band where the whole initial value of proposition was like the discord being like them being very stiff and like ultra preppy versus playing this African music, you know, and like I do remember all the think pieces and just the outrage, not outrage, but just it was a really bizarre phenomenon to experience in real time. And it's probably the closest analog to remain in light, you know, that I can immediately think of in terms of how it was received critically and just what a big deal it was commercially. Mm. Was that their first album or the second? Was that Contra? That, that, that Contra was the second one. The first one is self-titled. I, I don't know the year offhand, but like you know, that was Cape Cod Quasa Quasa. Oh, okay, you know, okay, okay, okay. That, that, yeah. that song title alone, you know, was good for two hundred thousand words of, of internet <laughs> discourse. I think, and so that's it's very quaint to think about that now, given like what you know a controversy is now versus then. But yeah, it's it's a funny thing to think about in retrospect. But I. Even though he's not like any kind of prominent part of this record, but I really like having him, you know, in a sneaky cameo role on this record just for sort of the meta-ness of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, oh, yeah. I have one more question. Since, you know, like we have already discussed, she heard the first record in 1980 and then didn't listen to it in full until 2016 and decided yeah. that she liked it so much that she needed to cover it. Is there anything... Is there any song that you've had that sort of like gap with and then like gone back and listened to the full album and, you know, like gained a a large affinity for it? I mean, I had a major retrospective talking head phase a few years ago, you know, and growing up as just a kid on pop radio and MTV and stuff like that, I sort of knew them as these semi-famous pop stars. And then when I was, you know, first becoming a full-time rock critic, you know, I sort of approached them from the New York, like, semi-cool, punk-adjacent sort of perspective. But, like, yeah, I mean, just just going back to their whole catalog, there's a late Talking Heads song called Nothing But Flowers. It's on either their last record or their second-to-last record, like, right before they 
broke up, and it's it's just an outrageously beautiful straight Afro pop song. It's really wonderful thing. Like I've heard, you know, people playing it at their weddings and stuff like that. Like it's as a late-breaking sort of thing when they were on the downside or just fighting all the time and and on the cusp of breaking up. You know, to have this final record that sort of synthesized the stuff that they had been doing on Remain in Light in like a, a pure sort of pop way. Like I, I would recommend that song particularly to anyone, and I would certainly like to her hear you know her version of it if she ever gets around to it. Whoa. Hopefully she does in the in the very near future. I'd like to hear her do slippery people actually. Oh um. man, I love that one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, stop making stop making sense is my favorite live album, like live concert for sure. And so I'd I'd take any of that for sure. Rob, thank you very much for coming through to talk about the Talking Heads and this Angelique Kidjo album. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. <laughs> of course. All right, take it easy, man. That's it. That's all we got. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, we'll probably be talking about Astroworld, provided Travis Scott actually drops it. Uh, We might talk about YG's still dangerous, too. Special thanks to Lindsay Zolads and Rob Harvilla for joining me this week. Shout out my producers, Agia Chagre and Zach Mack. Don't forget to check out our playlist that we will be updating every week with the songs we're listening to. A link to that is in the description. Also, please rate and subscribe, but only if you like the show. We'd really appreciate it. Peace. See you next week.